I think it's fair to say this is not your typical election. Have you always told the truth? I've always tried to. Hillary Clinton is a bigot. These are racist ideas, race-baiting ideas, anti-Muslim, anti-immigrant, anti-women. I know more about ISIS than th the generals do. No, Donald, you don't. <laughs> Every time I think about Trump, I get allergic. When you're running for president, I think you have an obligation to be healthy. His latest paranoid fever dream is about my health. And all I can say is, Donald, dream on. Hillary Clinton and her campaign of 2008 started the birther controversy. I finished it. From The New York Times, this is The Run-Up. I'm Michael Barbaro. These two larger-than-life personalities, Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, have circled each other for over a year, mocking and maligning and dissecting each other, but always from a distance. That's over. On Monday night, these polar opposites in temperament and experience will finally face off on the same debate stage, separated by mere feet. What will that confrontation look like? My colleagues Frank Bruni and Amy Chozik will game it out. And how have these two candidates prepared for this hugely anticipated showdown? One of the few people who has an up-close insight into that for both candidates is Tony Schwartz. He ghostwrote Donald Trump's 1987 bestseller, The Art of the Deal, a lucrative job he now deeply regrets. And based on his unusual understanding of how Trump's mind works, he was recruited by Hillary Clinton's campaign to help her prepare for this debate. Tony Schwartz, thank you for being here. I'm really grateful. Thanks for having me, Michael. So you, in a very real sense, inhabited Donald Trump's brain, and that's what makes you such an asset in this campaign for Hillary Clinton. And you can anticipate his behaviors and his reactions. So help us anticipate how he will behave on stage on Monday night. What do you think that will look like and feel like? Well, I think there will be no new Trump. Let's be absolutely clear about that. <laughs> What you see and have seen is what he is, and he won't be any different. He won't be, as he likes to put it, so presidential. You'll get tired of my being presidential. The more insecure he's feeling, the more brittle and repetitive and bullying and deflecting he'll become. If you were debating him on this stage, what tactics would you use and why would you use them? I'd be very calm, direct and unflappable, but relentless, and I mean relentless over 90 minutes, in calling out every time a lie came out of his mouth and at coming back to that over and over and over again to demonstrate the thinness of his knowledge, uh, his inability to answer any question beyond a sentence or two without repeating himself. I'd call out his repetitions calmly, unflappably, but confidently. Why do you keep emphasizing the importance of staying calm? Is that because it will be in contrast to this voluble improvisational style he has? Well, listen, he's not incapable of getting people riled up. We saw that in the Republican debates. He is a very effective provocateur. And I think what America would probably want to see is that the person they choose to vote for for president is someone who seems presidential, who seems calm under pressure. And so I think 
any evidence of that can only serve the person who demonstrates it. How do you rile Donald Trump? And I ask this as someone who, as a collaborator on a project, may have accidentally or deliberately riled him a bunch. Well, I learned to be, honestly, I learned to be pretty careful about not riling him. But uh, I certainly saw uh, how he got riled uh, by others many, many times. And it isn't that he shows it on the surface. I, I don't expect him to blow up in a temper tantrum. Uh, I'd be really surprised. But you get under Donald Trump's skin by exposing that there's no there there beyond the bluster, that there isn't a wizard you know, behind the curtain. You, you break down his persona by showing how he's really not nearly as intelligent as he says he is and would like to be. He he can't avoid repeating himself. He can't stay focused on a subject for very long. And then you torture him with his own words about John McCain, about the cons, uh, about knowing more than the generals know about ISIS, about the birther claims. And I say torture because you keep coming back to it because it's his words. And there's no ultimate way of his getting out of it except to deny it. And what is denying it? It means doubling down. And that's what he always will do if you push him hard on the lies that he tells. He will then just double down, and that's where he'll be in enormous trouble the next day. You say that Donald Trump has a very limited attention span, and I, and I wonder if you could help us understand that. And, and how is it that you think that Hillary Clinton can exploit that? The reason I know that he has a short attention span is that even during the 18 months I spent working with him on this book, and it should have taken six months, but... Uh, one of the reasons it didn't is because he couldn't tolerate doing interviews. He just couldn't stay focused for more than a few minutes at a time. And think about this, Michael. It was when he was talking about himself, <laughs> which is his favorite subject, that he couldn't stay focused. He would jump up, literally jump up and say, I just can't stand this. You've got enough. Let's stop. Enough of this. How much do you need? And he started, <laughs> he started saying that on the first day of the first interview. I wonder how nervous Hillary Clinton should be about Donald Trump's pretty effective record of reducing the person on stage next to him to dust, right? I think about Little Marco and Low Energy Jeb. Those were devastating. I honestly believe that if he savages Hillary in the way he did some of those Republican candidates, the election is over and he loses. Why? The reason I say that, and therefore I would say Hillary shouldn't be too worried about it, but she should be prepared for him to be savaging. But inside, if he does, she should be rejoicing because I believe, just to be simple about it, that if he is seen as a bully, women will rise up in much bigger numbers than they would if he didn't. I don't think he will. So here's a secret. Uh, it's not a secret, but here's what I think is actually counterintuitively true. I think he's going to be intimidated by Hillary. Really? You may not see it on his face, but if you think of the way he was a week or 10 days ago in Detroit with the pastor face Green Timmons, he was the one who was reduced to a puddle. You know, it's one thing for him to go up against another male who tries to bully back. 
But Hillary's not going to try to billy back, and she's a woman, and he's not really comfortable with women, certainly not in a way that would be well-received by people. So I expect that he won't actually savage her, and I think it's going to be very tough for him uh, to kind of find the right place to operate. But in honesty, there's some wishful thinking in this, and I'm not a pundit. I'm, a, I'm an advocate for Trump's sound defeat. So take what I say with a grain of salt. So because you have this interesting insight into both of these candidates who are going to be on the stage Monday, I feel like you can help us understand how Hillary may be thinking about this debate, in part based on your exposure to that campaign. I mean, what exactly— Well, here, here's the thing. Here's the thing. Um, what I think happens to Hillary, and this is just an observation, as you would have, and exceeds you know, my pay grade because I'm not an expert on Hillary. I'm an expert on Donald Trump. As a person who wants to see Trump lose, what I would hope is that she doesn't go the same route she did with Matt Lauer when he started coming at her relentlessly, which was to revert to her knowledge, to revert to her ability to produce 100 facts in a short period of time, because this debate is going to turn not a bit on the issues. It's going to turn on emotions. It's going to turn on which candidate makes all of us feel safer and which candidate makes us feel less safe. And the one who wins that contest wins the debate. I want to know how much of the Donald Trump that we see on television, the Donald Trump on stage as a candidate, is the Donald Trump you saw and is the real Donald Trump. Are they the same? There is no difference. There is no difference. You know, Donald Trump would call me up at night during the period where I was writing the book as late as 11 or 11.30 at night just to tell me how great he was. Not because he wanted to share with me a series of anecdotes or facts that could be added to the book, but because he's a black hole. There's, there's an infinite, unfillable, unquenchable thirst to feel okay. And he leaks the feeling of self-respect all day long, and so there's just no end to the need to fill it. Donald Trump's language is his chief weapon, and it's because the language he uses makes him seem so relatable to people. And you wrote a book in his voice, so you have a deep understanding of that language. Talk to us a little bit about what's so interesting and important about the lexicon of Donald Trump. Well, the book I wrote and the words that uh, show up in The Art of the Deal are not the way Donald Trump talks. They're a a sanitized or enhanced version of the way he talks. They're the person, and this is really clearly true since he calls the book the second best book written since the Bible, they're the idealized image of Donald Trump without um, just completely trading, you know, any kind of authenticity. So, you know, every word is designed to be a little bit better or significantly better than the version of himself he would present left to his own devices. Having said that, I do think that his words are very effective. He speaks in the language of a, first of all, of a, you know, probably a fourth or fifth grader. And, you know, there are a lot, there are a lot of people in this country who are, who are not well-educated or have a limited vocabulary, and everybody gets and understands the language he uses. And he does sound like a kind of a, a plain-spoken, if somewhat crude, guy. And on the plain spoken side, I, I think on the one hand, people feel, I get this guy. And on the other hand, I think they idealize him and they say to themselves, well, 
you know, I'm in a tough situation and somehow this guy who kind of sounds like me or sounds like other people I know has managed to triumph in a way that would be my ultimate dream. And they're living through him and hoping that they can channel his energy into their lives so that they get better. They won't. They won't. He won't make them better. He'll sell them out just like he sells everybody else out. And that's my moderate conclusion for the time being. Tony, you've expressed regret at having been a writer on this project, The Art of the Deal. And I wonder, as you watch the debate on Monday, kind of how you'll reckon with with that and how far he's gotten and how that makes you feel. It makes me feel awful. And I don't think I can ever even the score. I don't think I can ever set it fully straight. It's, It's to me, I hope, if anything, an opportunity to be able to say to people, because I've been given some opportunity to speak to a lot of people that, you know, be very, very careful of the choices you make and that you rationalize when you're young. And I'm in retrospect horrified by what I did. Now, having said that, Donald Trump, you know, led me to the Dharma. (laughs) The fact that my experience with him was so extreme and that I found what he stood for to be so abhorrent actually reset my life in my early 30s. And for the rest of my life, you could say, I've been trying to redeem it and to live a life that I could feel good about and proud of. And I, so I, I don't know if I would, what I would do if I had to do all over again, because if I did it differently, I wouldn't have the life I have now. And the life I have now for all the guilt I feel is a life I feel good about. So I don't believe, you know, unlike John Stump, the CEO of Wells Fargo, his job is to step down in his dishonor. My job is to never take a dollar from the rest of the life of the art of the deal and to commit myself to say the truth that I know in the service of trying to help save the country and the world from a guy who is exceptionally dangerous. And I certainly feel good about doing that. Well, Tony, I want to thank you for being on the show. Thanks a lot. So back to the big night. The reality is that the qualities that Tony Schwartz so reviles have endeared Donald Trump to millions of Americans, and they've found their most powerful expression at the debates. Clinton will be trying to find a way to counteract that, to undermine it, to make those qualities look like negatives rather than positives. That's why someone like Tony Schwartz is such a valuable coach. But he's just one part of Clinton's preparations. What else is she doing? What's Trump doing? And what can be learned from their successes and stumbles in past debates? With me is Frank Bruni. He is an op-ed columnist extraordinaire, and his hot takes on debate nights, his write-ups, are must-reads. And with me is Amy Chozik. She is our premier chronicler of Hillary Clinton at the New York Times. Amy, Frank, thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having us. So, Amy, aside from talking to Tony Schwartz, how is Hillary Clinton prepared for this debate? What are her aides telling her she has to do? Well, Hillary Clinton is very much the, you know, straight-A student who spends all night in the library preparing. And aside from Tony Schwartz and some outsiders they've asked advice for, it's a pretty traditional debate prep. And she's doing what you would think, poring over briefings, doing kind of flash rounds of how she would respond to things, but also gaming out different scenarios. Her campaign has been saying, we don't know which Donald Trump will show up. They're talking about the two Donalds. Is it the Donald Trump who's going to be scripted and doing what his advisors tell him? Doubtful, but maybe. Or is it going to be the kind of no holds barred, throwing everything at her, that she belongs in prison? And, you know, how do you respond to both of those different Trumps? 
All right. Meanwhile, Frank, over at Trump Tower, what kind of rigor do we understand as being applied to debate prep? I don't think we will ever know for sure, because I think part of the whole gestalt of Donald Trump's campaign is if he is trying to be disciplined, if he is trying to be prepared, that's not the image he wants to project. He's Mr. Authenticity. So I, I think we have a much less clear picture on what's happening in Trump land than we do on what's happening in Clinton land. That said, we know that by nature, Donald Trump is not somebody who's going to spend all night in the library, someone who might not even know where the library is. He's right? the jock who yeah. rolls in with the answers exactly, on his hand. Exactly. Um, and so I think the main thing that's going on in Trump land is a discussion about how do you keep him controlled enough during these 90 minutes that he comes off the stage and people think, huh, I could see that man as president. Because typically, I think of Trump as a toddler um, sitting in a high chair. And his advisors are saying, Wah. Donald, you must get through the meal without throwing your spaghetti on the wall. And so the question is, will they successfully persuade him not to throw his spaghetti on the wall before the debate ends? I would that perfectly tease up my next question, which is, given the dynamics in this race, what do Trump and Clinton have to accomplish on Monday night? Well, he, he has to accomplish, he has to convince those voters um, who are only softly attached to him who, or who are undecided, and it's kind of astonishing we even have undecided voters given how much we know about these candidates. He has to convince them that he's not a huge danger, he's not a huge risk, he's not a loose cannon. And that means just getting onto that stage and in the course of 90 minutes not coming across as somebody who is unhinged, who has no impulse control, all of that sort of thing. But for him, the challenge is the charm of him, so to speak. What many voters like about him is how irreverent he is. So how do you thread that needle where you come across as sufficiently presidential, but you remain irreverent enough that in a, at a moment when people want the system exploded a little bit, they want change, you hold on to that part of your appeal. Um, and Amy can speak better to what Hillary has to accomplish. <laughs> well, I think it's uh, it's the same. She has to walk a careful line. I mean, she's got two main things she needs to accomplish. She needs to show America that Donald Trump is, she says, a liar, is dangerous. She needs to prosecute the case against Donald Trump. I mean, sometimes I see her, you know, talking about his weaknesses, and I think she gets into litigator mode. You know, she's very much the lawyer prosecuting the case. She needs to do that, but she also needs to present kind of a personal, honest side of herself. I mean, she really needs to work on her trust numbers to make America trust her. And I'd say she has to make a positive case for her candidacy. You know, she did a very good job leading into the convention of, you know, making the case of why you should not vote against Donald Trump. But like here we are with a couple months left in the election and a lot of voters are confused about why they should vote for yeah, her. Is yeah. it just to vote against Trump? So she has to give some people something to vote for, not just against. And right now her likability, her trust numbers, I mean, they're terrible. They're equal to Trump's. She's, she has one enormous advantage here. And it's being talked about, as it should, but I think we can't talk about it enough, which is that she has gone the distance of a one-on-one -on -one debate before. She did one-on-one -on -one debates with Bernie Sanders. She did one-on-one -on -one debates with Barack Obama, with Rick Lazio. Yes. I went back and looked. So Trump did 11 primary debates. Okay, Only in three of those did he have to talk for more than 20 minutes. And only in one of those did he have to talk for more than 30 minutes. Good analysis, If Frank. they get equal time, He's going to have to talk for nearly 45 minutes. And I think if that means we hear Make America Great Again for a sixth time, and if we hear about how we're going to get tired of winning an eighth time, I don't care how charming in other ways he seems. I think people are going to wonder, um, very tall, orange-crowned house, is anybody home? I think that to really understand Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump's debating style, we have to dive into the video clips. Here is Donald Trump doing what he does best. 
I got along with everybody. You get along with nobody. You don't have one Republican. You don't have Back one check. Republican senator, and you work with them every day of your life, although you skipped a lot of time. These are minor details. But you don't have one Republican senator backing you, not one. You don't have the endorsement of one Republican senator, and you work with these people. Senator Cruz. You should be ashamed of yourself. What's so effective about that? It's very blunt. It's very plain. It's very to the point. You know, there's no political speak in that. That is just a human being putting his finger exactly on what people dislike about Ted Cruz. Now, here's the problem with looking at that in isolation. I remember that debate. I remember every single one of these debates. Donald Trump's insults pile up during a debate to the point where that's a brilliant moment, but it's one of 10 times he insulted or mocked his opponents. And if he does that against Hillary Clinton, it's going to get old fast. and He's going to look like a sexist bully. I want to tell you what I find most fascinating about that clip. It's the way Trump talks. There's actually all these fascinating asides within what he said. He starts off with a kind of traditional attack on Ted Cruz for not being likable. Then he pauses and says, although you skip a lot of a time, these are minor details. He has like clauses within clauses and asides within asides that they're kind of entrancing. And they and they often, I think they often I'm work. I'm going to disagree? disagree with you on that one because I think we often have a hard time analyzing stuff because of what we get and what a viewer doesn't get. We know he's referring to attendance in the Senate. I'm not sure a casual viewer has any idea what he's talking about. And I would say that was the one flaw in what he just did Interesting. There. Except it made him seem casual and spontaneous and genuine. So in that sense, good. Hillary Clinton has her own unique style of confrontation. Here's an example. I am sure a lot of people are very surprised to learn that you supported raising the minimum wage to 15 bucks an hour. I have stood Wolf, on the debate Wolf, stage with I, Senator Sanders eight prior oh, times. Me. I have Wolf, said the Secretary, exact same Senator, thing. Please. If the, we the, can the, raise it to fifteen in New York or Los Angeles Secretary, or Seattle, viewers, let's do it. If you're both screaming at each other, the viewers won't be able to hear either of you. Okay. So was, please don't talk over I each other. Go ahead. Responding. You chose a great moment because she was extremely annoyed in this debate. She was annoyed. She she didn't want to do it. Remember that there was all this debate over the debate and whether the New York primary needed another debate. She was just done with Bernie at this point. <laughs> like I really think she didn't want to be there. You could tell. And she rare, she actually rarely interrupts. She has told donors in the past that as a woman, she has to be careful not to interrupt. A donor gave her some advice who knew Trump and his business and said, you got to interrupt him because he'll never shut up. And she said, as a woman, I really have to be careful about how that will come across. So this is a, this is a rare moment when she really unleashes. And I think she's very frustrated. Uh, and I, I also know that it frustrates her that Bernie Sanders seemed to be screaming all the time. And her advisors would often say, mm, you're kind of screaming. You know, she gets criticized for screaming. And she would say, I don't understand why a man can scream all the time. But if I remember this correctly, he had the facts on his side. She wasn't for a $15 an hour wage. She was for this progression that would eventually get mm -hmm. you there. And her solution to that was to basically just talk right over him. Well, this is this is like so many issues. It's positively whether, Trumpian. Right. <laughs> whether it's fracking or whatever it was, when she's put on the spot, she sort of like weasels into multiple positions. You know, oh, I do support the $15 minimum wage in New York and Los Angeles, but I don't support this and that, and it's complicated. And yes, it's all a big jumble of screaming. We have a really strong sense of these two candidates from the primary debates, and we're, and we're watching these clips, and we're listening to them. But how different will this debate feel from those debates, like technically, spiritually, visually? Well, I mean, in, in the case of Donald Trump, it's going to feel utterly different because he, his smallest crowd in the debate was four people. Um, and I think in all of those debates, there were audiences that 
to varying degrees, we're discouraged, encouraged to weigh in, but this is going to be a much more somber, somber thing. It was interesting. I was talking to um, Beth Myers, who was deeply involved in the Mitt Romney 2012 race, and she made the point that Donald Trump has never been through anything like this before because when it's just two of you, when it's a general election presidential debate, when you get up there, um, you really don't have the kind of reaction from the crowd. No commercial breaks. No commercial breaks. It feels utterly, utterly different. And we have no idea how Donald Trump is going to respond to that because this is completely new to him. This is not The Apprentice, and this is not like any of the Republican primary season debates. I'd totally forgotten about the absence of commercial breaks, and that could play How could a you forget about that when role. Donald Trump made a big deal about Hillary Clinton having gone to the bathroom during one debate and being late to come back to her lectern? Just the ability to take a mental break I mean, that is a really well, nice think, benefit. And it's huge in the case of Donald Trump, because if you go back and you look at the Republican debates, when the conversation would stray into a policy area that he clearly had minimal interest in or zero fluency in, he just sort of retreated. And most of the other people on the stage were happy for that because they were just desperate to get as much time as he got. If he feels the need to or the desire to retreat here, he's got nowhere to hide. And I think that makes this very interesting. But in terms of mental stamina, I would get back to the Benghazi committee. And Hillary Clinton sat there for 11 hours answering questions. That wasn't the first time, of course, she's been questioned by a congressional committee. Health care, previous Benghazi committees, uh, she can take standing on that stage with no commercial breaks. But I also think it's a first for the country. We've never seen a woman yeah. uh, in a general election debate with the two with the two nominees. Absolutely true. Yeah. And that's why it's so... Uh, yeah, we've never had a had a woman who was a major party nominee, so we've never had a general election debate between a man and a woman. And it also means that those normal judgments we make about size and interruptions and huffs and all of that, they could play out very differently based on the fact that we've got a man and a woman here, and not just any man and woman, but a woman and a man who has got such a long and well-documented history of remarks that objectify and trivialize women. So that makes this dangerous for Donald Trump in a very particular way. Amy, gender, I argue, could actually tip the scales in this debate, and it's, it's a complete unknown exactly how it's going to play out. We have some information from the primary debates about how it did play out. Let's watch a clip. Ms. Fiorina, I do want to ask you about this. In an interview last week in Rolling Stone magazine, Donald Trump said the following about you, quote, look at that face. Would anyone vote for that? Can you imagine that, the face of our next president? Mr. Trump later said he was talking about your persona, not your appearance. Please feel free to respond what you think about his persona. <laughs> You know, it's interesting to me, Mr. Trump said that he heard Mr. Bush very clearly and what Mr. Bush said. I think women all over this country heard very clearly what Mr. Trump said. I think she's got a beautiful face and I think she's a beautiful woman. No, I mean... This is a guy who has a history, as I said, of objectifying and trivializing women. And his consolation is, no, I think you're pretty. Don't worry. But what's great about that, and, and it brings us to a other, another whole dimension here, which is how visual debates are, is he, while that's going on, CNN's smart enough to go to a split screen. He's looking over at her in this teasing, flirtatious manner. Like his approach to solving problems with women is to flirt with them. And she brilliantly is looking in the other direction and will not meet his gaze, and it makes him look teeny tiny. Hillary will be trying to make him feel teeny tiny, that is for sure. And one way she does that is she calls him Donald. 
Carly did something really interesting in that moment. She not for a second made it about Carly Fiorina. She turned herself into a proxy. A rare moment. (laughs) Carly Fiorina turned herself into a proxy for every woman in America who saw something in that moment. And Hillary Clinton has to make an interesting decision. Is she allowed to ever express personal grievance in a debate for something Donald Trump has said about her? And according to the Carly Fiorina doctrine, the answer is it should not be about you. I th- that's a great, great point. Um, and that would be a very good guide for Hillary Clinton because she doesn't do aggrievement well. I mean, I think the big problem with the email scandal, the reason it went on so long is if you go back and look at that first month or two, she seemed irritated by the questions coming her way. She cannot seem irritated by the questions coming her way on Monday night. Sometimes Hillary Clinton's A student approach, as you call it, Amy, it works. And sometimes it sounds like this. Look. This election is mostly about the future, and therefore it is of greatest urgency for young people. I've laid out my ideas about what we can do to make college affordable. Okay, so if we haven't lost our listeners to Twitter or to any other app on their phone, I want to talk about what Hillary Clinton just did. (laughs) Well, when she says you can go to my website, HillaryClinton.com, and find all of my policy plans, that's that's a big snooze. I mean, you're right. She she in one hand is frustrated because she does have all these plans and she thinks that it's not breaking through, which, you know, in many cases it's not. And so a debate stage gives her an opportunity to explain her plan for college. But as you said, she has to do it in a compelling way, not in a bullet point. She sometimes feels to me like she's trying to run out the clock. And that's classic run out the clock. And you know what? You don't get that many minutes of the American voters' attention, so don't use them to run out the clock. Frank, Amy, thank you for being here. Thank you. Thank you, Michael. That's it for The Run-Up. I'm Michael Barbaro. We'll be back here on Tuesday, the morning right after the debate, and we will have answers for you. Was Donald Trump prepared? Did Hillary Clinton seem overprepared? And most pressingly of all, what color tie did Lester Holt wear? We'll discuss.